The Himalayan mountain range represents some of the most rugged and formidable mountains on the face of this earth, the greatest of which is Mount Everest. It towers some five and a half miles above sea level. In fact, for hundreds of years, it was deemed unscalable. The dangers include incredibly cold temperatures, high altitude sickness, avalanches, ice, wind, and unpredictable blizzards. In fact, it's a task to even reach the base of it. It wasn't until the 1920s that even an attempt was made to scale it. And between 1920 and the early 1950s, 11 attempts were made to scale it, of which 10 were unsuccessful. In 1921, one group made it to 22,900 feet. In 1922, another expedition made it to 27,300 feet. But during the descent, tragedy struck and seven climbers were killed in an avalanche. In 1924, George Mallory and Andrew Irvine made it to some 26 or 27,000 feet. And on June the 8th, they pushed for the summit only to disappear. It wasn't until 29 years later, an obscure beekeeper from New Zealand attempted again. His name was Sir Edmund Hillary. He was the first of among 12 men who finally reached the summit on May the 29th using the south side, which was considered unclimbable. It had taken them two months. Careful planning, conditioning, a careful use of oxygen, along with good weather, allowed Edmund Hillary to stand where no man had ever stood before. For a moment, I want you to imagine what that must have been like. Thin air, incredible cold, and literally the top of the world. A place as silent as light. A place simply too profound for words. Only the expanse of snow and the shrouded Himalayans for miles around. That moment, though it is majestic and etched in time, pales in comparison where Paul stood at the latter place of Romans 11. Paul stands on a peak far more profound. And as Paul looks out across the towers and the mountains of God's righteousness, he looks at those peaks of justification, sanctification, the sovereignty of God, the election of God, the Jew and the Gentile. Some of those peaks equally indescribable. And so Paul uses the words, given by God himself. And Paul, standing at the summit and from his vantage point, he points out to three more peaks. The three peaks are the mercy of God, the mind of God, and the glory or the majesty of God. Unsearchable, unfathomable, and indescribable. I want to welcome you to this part of the service, and uh, 
the last message of 2013. Isn't that amazing? I suppose in some ways this morning we are all kind of like Paul and Hillary. We're climbers. We've climbed our way through 2013. And the peak of 2014 looms in front of us. This morning, even though we haven't looked at all of the verses in Romans 11 concerning the Jew and the Gentile, somehow it seemed fitting to conclude this year by considering God himself. It just seemed appropriate. And so I invite you this morning to follow along. You can use, or use your Bibles or you can follow on the PowerPoint. I have the, the text on the PowerPoint as well. Romans 11, verse 30, says, For in times past ye have not believed God, yet now have obtained mercy through their unbelief. Paul is referring back to the peaks that he's climbed, the Jew and the Gentile. And even though it was prophesied for hundreds of centuries, when the Messiah came, Jesus came, he came first to his own but they rejected him. And because the Jews hardened their hearts, God took it a step further and he blinded them. And it was through their unbelief, the Jew, that God turned to the Gentile, those outside the camp of the Jews, the dogs, the fuel for the fires of hell, the disobedient. None of us had any favor with God. Paul has it so right, for ye have in times past not believed in God. You know, if all of us would go back into centuries ago, ultimately we would find those who did not believe. In fact, some of you could only, would only have to go back 5, 10, 20 years. That was our life. Ephesians 2 makes this even clearer. It says in verse 1, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. We were dead. Verse 2, Where in times past you walked according to the course of this world and according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. We had no choice but to serve sin. The only choice we had was what flavor, what kind of sin. Verse 3, among whom also we had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Verse 11, wherefore remember that ye being in, the, in time past Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision, by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. And notice these words, having no hope and without God in the world. We were both hopeless and godless. Hopeless and undeserving, God took a, this wild olive branch 
which was us, and he grafted it in. Now, in verse 31, Paul says, Even so have these also now not, not believed. Paul talk, he's talking about the Jew. Then he goes on to say that through your mercy, they also may obtain mercy. You know, there's various opinions of, as to what Paul is referring to. Some seem to think that the Jews, the remnant today of the Jews that are believing, they have obtained mercy. A lot of, there's a lot of effort made on the part of, of Christians in the U.S. To, to reach out to the Jews. There are those who also think that Paul is referring to the future national Israel. Uh, the time in the future yet when God will, will give them a kingdom. But that's not the point. In either case, the channel of God's mercy is the Gentile. It's us. But lest you become conceited, notice what Paul says in verse 32. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. That word concluded means enclosed or shut up. In Luke 5, it is used to describe fish caught in a net. The thought is, is helplessly trapped and imprisoned and no way to get out without help from the outside. You and I were those fish who were trapped in sin, helpless, and hopeless, and God comes with his key called mercy mercy isn't one of those uh, attributes that you often think about in fact this past week if you thought anything about the ad attributes of God you probably thought about grace love and peace you guys remember the story of the two men that were praying in the temple one a Pharisee who could forget the prayer of the Pharisee Lord, I'm thankful I'm not like these other men. Extortioners, adulterers, unjust. And, and then I imagine his eyes filling with disgust as he, he looks over at this tax collector. Kind of with a sneer, he said, Lord, I'm glad I'm not like this man. And then his chest puffing out a little, he says, you know, I, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of everything I have. But how different the prayer of the tax collector was. He doesn't even bother to look up. And kind of with anguish, he smites his chest and says, he's sinful, he's ruined, and he's hopeless. Says God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said that this man went to his house justified. You know what that means? God gave him the key of mercy. Dwight Pentecost calls mercy God's ministry to the miserable. Isn't that good? If you're someone who finds yourself in a miserable condition, 
Consider the mercy of God. You know why? Because God's mercy encourages you. It lifts you up. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says, Mercy is an attribute of God, an infinite and inexhaustible energy within the divine which disposes God to be actively compassionate. In other words, mercy is the divine compassion in action. You know, it's, it's one thing for you to, to pray for somebody. It's something else when you say, Lord, show me how I could help this person. And you go help that person. You see, that's mercy. A.W. Tozer continues, he said, If we could remember God's mercy is not a temporary mood, but an internal attribute of God's being, we would no longer fear it would one day cease to be. Mercy never began to be, but from eternity was, so it will never cease to be. It will never be more since it is itself infinite. It will never be less because the infinite can ever suffer diminution. Nothing that has occurred or will occur in heaven or earth or hell can change the tender mercies of our God. Mercy, forever his mercy stands, a boundless, overwhelming immensity of divine pity and compassion. Isn't that good? Doesn't, doesn't that encourage you? You know, because we are, in, we are finite beings, everything we, everything we know wears out, depletes, or becomes finished, or is emptied. And we take this and we, we kind of look at the infinite and think the same. But the infinite is not like that. God is not like that. It is never depleted. It, it continues. Frederick Faber, who, the man who wrote the hymn, The Faith of Our Fathers, also wrote these words. There's a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. And the last part of the verse says, There is kindness in his justice which is more than liberty. There is welcome for the sinner, and more grace is for the good. There is mercy with the Savior. There is healing in his blood. You see, God stands with the key of mercy, and that's available to every sinner who is willing to admit that his pockets are empty and that he's bankrupt. God stoops with the key and unlocks your prison. Now, in verses 33 and 34, Paul begins, well, let's read it. Oh, the depth of the riches of both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Who hath known the mind of the Lord or who hath been his counselor? And Paul uses the word depths to describe the wisdom and the knowledge of God or the mind of God, he's using the word, the Greek word bathos. And in the 1930s, two men developed, took this cylinder, kind of like a big BB. It is made of an inch thick steel and they 
had windows that were three-inch thick fused quartz. This, this cylinder was on a cable, and they used it to explore the ocean. It was called a bathysphere. And it was taken, it, because of how it was constructed, it some, took some time to do it. But they went to a depth of some 3,000 feet, and they were able to see species and photograph species they had never seen before. But we're not exploring the depths of the sea. We're exploring the depths of the mind of God. And there's something, when you explore the depths of, of the mind of God, there's something that Paul says. He says his judgments are unsearchable and his ways are past finding out. That word, those words past finding out mean untrackable. Yesterday, my brother called me and he was out hunting coyote. And he wounded one severely enough that it, it left a blood trail. It was trackable. But that's exactly the opposite of God. You see, God's ways, God is not trackable. His, 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 his mind is unfathomable. Y you can't track it. A number of years ago, I worked with an individual who subscribed to the, the, uh, the uh, belief that the only way you can accept something is that it must first be proven. And I challenged him. There's something wrong with that. And he applied it to God. The problem with that, you're a finite being. You can never explore and prove God, an infinite being. It cannot, you don't live long enough. We'll, be in, we'll spend all of eternity and still not plumb the depths of the mind of God. I love the words of one man who told his doctor, this is good. He says, my, my God continues where your science leaves off. Isn't that great? <laughs> love that. There's something I want all of you to, to hear, and it's deep. So I want you to kind of fasten your seatbelts and hang on and, and, and listen close to this. A theologian writes this. He's, we say God is infinite. We mean he knows no bounds. When we say God is infinite, it is to say he is measureless. Measurements is the way created things have of accounting for themselves. It describes limitations and imperfections and cannot apply to God. Weight describes the gravitational pull of the earth upon material bodies. Distance describes intervals between bodies in space. Length means the extension in space, and there are other familiar measurements such as liquid, energy, sound, light, and numbers. Is it not plain that all of this cannot and does not apply to God? It is the way we see the works of his hands, but not the way we see him. He is above all this. He is outside it. 
and he is beyond it. Our concepts of measurement embrace mountains and men, atoms and stars, gravity and energy, numbers and speed, but never God. We cannot speak of measurement or amount or size or weight and at the same time be speaking of God. For all these tell of degrees and there are no degrees with God. All that he is is without degrees, growth, addition, or development. Nothing in God is less or more, large or small. He is what he is in himself. Without qualifying thought or word, he is God. And I love these words. This is the awful abyss of a divine being. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Doesn't that just blow your mind? God cannot be contained. It's unfathomable. Years ago, we took a trip out west, and one of the, the routes we took was, uh, was US 550. It travels through Colorado. And on part of that route is what is called the Million Dollar Highway because of just how scenic it is. And as you, uh, especially the, the route between uh, Durango and Montrose, is there's, there's, there's scenes, just scenes there that you just, it takes your breath. You just say, wow, uh, it's amazing. But as majestic as and amazing as that was, it, it, it can't be compared to God. And so in the midst of our silence, Paul asks several questions in verses 30, uh, 34 and 35. He says, For who hath known the mind of, of the Lord, and who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him that it be, shall be recompensed unto him again? You see, what Paul's asking is to the one who, who understands everything of God, stand up. To the person who has, has mentored God, please stand. To the one who thinks he has given a gift to God, let him stand. And the one who has again, after having given the gift, has been repaid, please stand up. No one? Isn't it amazing how often, though, we think that we have a better grasp of our life situation than God? You understand how foolish it is to say, God, you don't understand? <laughs> how often we've all made that statement? Or, I think this should have happened, God. Or, I really needed that. I mean, if you'd have been advising God, wouldn't you have chosen a bigger, nicer city for Jesus to be born in? And wouldn't it have at least have been a nice, clean hospital? Wouldn't you have chosen a better couple, like a king or a queen come on come on let's face it that story had inexperience written all over it 
And while you were at it, wouldn't you have at least made the math come out to nine months? So that Jesus wouldn't have had to live with scandal his whole life. You see, God's ways are so different than ours. They are untrackable, unfathomable. Verse 36. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. I want you to notice with me the prepositions in verse 36. Prepositions denote origin and direction. Well, I guess I missed that part. For of him is the Greek preposition ek, meaning out of. And through him means channeled or directed. And to him is the Greek preposition ice, meaning into again. So imagine this circle out of, through, and into. You have this circle. It is all-inclusive. It includes you, your life, your family, your home, your future, your situation, your church. It includes everything. There isn't a situation in all of life, positive or negative, that is beyond God's reach, God's touch, and God's direction. Why is it that you and I can believe, easily believe the virgin birth and yet reject the puzzle, the piece of that puzzle that God has, has placed in our life? There really isn't anything good that could come out of this. We've often thought it. But the thing we need to remember is not for our glory. It's for his. And you see, without seeing all the pieces put together, we can't imagine it ever fitting. And yet I'm convinced, even when we do, when we see that puzzle complete, and we see it to him, there's only one word that's going to be fitting, and that is indescribable. His glory is indescribable. And Paul adds, amen, and period. Donald Barnhouse writes something that happened to him when he was a boy. The wheat field across the road caught fire, and... Uh, the heat and the flames were as intense as they, they raced toward the home in which he lived. He remembers shaking with fear inside his home as the flames came nearer. Out in front of their home, there was this, this large oak tree. As the flames came nearer to the road, he remembers the leaves and the branches beginning to burn. 
hot debris, those leaves and some of those branches began hitting the home. But somehow, his home was spared. The fire stopped at the road. And that evening after the fire, he remembers stuffing his hands into his pockets and, and walking along the road. And as he did, he'd kick the debris. And it came to what looked like a charred piece of wood, and he kicked it. And out from underneath it came several little chicks. Upon a closer examination, he, he realized it wasn't a charred piece of wood. It was a mother hen. She had safely gathered her chicks under her wings and then sacrificed herself. Barnhouse adds, The Lord God in Christ pulled us underneath his wings and went to the fire. And out of mercy, in answer to the unfathomable mind of God, he provided a majestic purpose, the death of his son, that we might live. Doesn't that humble you? Doesn't that just break your heart? You know, together as one body, as a church family, we stand on the edge of another year. Imperfect, and bruised. You know, from the bumps of this year, We've had plenty of those. Cancer, hospitals, surgeries, family challenges, discouragement. But today when you leave, I want you to leave encouraged and with hope. If you're someone who is discouraged this morning, or perhaps you find yourself struggling with a a sin that somehow it just seems hopeless to win. It'd be easy to question the mercy of God and just, just say, I'm just not sure. It's still there. I want to encourage you this morning to forsake all opinions, your own and to others, and to hear only what God says in Lamentations 3. This I recall to my mind, and therefore I have hope. The writer is saying, here's the reason why I hope, have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The best way to tell that God's mercy is still there for you is to awake in the morning and to lift the shade and see if the sun has come up. It's the simplest way. If it has, God's mercy is still there. And it's a reason that you can meet the day again with, with hope and with courage. It's a reason to keep going, to stay at it. And just stay in the fight. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you this morning for this passage of Scripture. Lord, thank you for the, the life that is in your word, for the hope that is in your word, for the courage that we can draw from it. Lord, in a sense, this morning we stand beside Paul as we gaze across these, these mountains. Lord, we're grateful that you've created mountains, but we're also grateful that you would have, you've equipped us to be mountain climbers. Thank you, Lord, for what you've, created, you've, you've done for us in Christ. Thank you for the wonder of your plan. Lord, we're grateful that, that uh, for your mind, that through the Spirit of God, we, we have the mind of Christ. That in some aspects, we are able to somehow close part of it and understand some of it. Lord, thank you for, for each one that is here. Thank you for this divine appointment. Lord, we would pray you would encourage us as we leave. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.